What's up, guys? It's Will Cole. Welcome to another episode of Goop Fellas. Today's guest is my functional medicine brother, Dr. Paul Saladino. He is a functional medicine practitioner and one of the leading authorities on the science and application of the carnivore diet. And today we're talking all about what else but the carnivore diet. He taught us so much about how to do the carnivore diet the right way. What exactly is a carnivore diet? Why the heck you should consider maybe doing the carnivore diet, who the carnivore diet is for. We talk about the bioavailability of so many different nutrients, meaning how can you use food as medicine and get the most out of every meal using food as medicine. Uh, and then we talk about some controversial stuff as well. I mean, is the carnivore diet healthy long-term? Is it not healthy long-term? He busts a lot of myths uh, as far as the carnivore diet is concerned. Basically, this is everything you need to know about the controversial carnivore diet. Paul freaking Saladino. Thanks for being on Goopfellas. Well, Cole, it's so good to be here. It's so good to be here. We were just talking about how you guys are going to have a, s a hard time getting me to shut <laughs> Slowing up you down. after 40 minutes. We'll see if we can get through this. I, I want to know when the last time you ate a vegetable was. Uh, well, there's, there's two stories to this, right? Okay. So the last time I ate vegetables in any specific quantity was over a year and a half ago. Uh -huh. um, I did have a, a carbohydrate reintroduction experiment I did as part of my carnivore diet a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. I was kind of playing around. Everybody always talks about stuff and says, oh, you need carbs for athletic performance. I wasn't really right. convinced. I'd shown studies saying that I don't buy it and that you can see muscle glycogen stores that are the same in people who are fat adapted versus carbohydrate uh, high using athletes. And But I thought, well, let me introduce, reintroduce carbohydrates in my diet and see if anything changes. So I reintroduced squash. Mm -hmm. In the book, which is out now, The Carnivore Code, I have this spectrum of plant toxicity. And mm -hmm. as far as I can tell, squash are probably one of the least toxic plants. We're just dropping all sorts of bombs here for people that we'll sure, unpack like, in a what? moment. <laughs> what are they talking about? Toxic plants. So I, I, I think of you know, squash is some of the least toxic plants because it's like a non-sweet fruit. It's essentially a fruit of a plant. Right. Sure. A plant's not going to put a bunch of toxins into the fruit. It and you can wants, avoid the seeds pretty easily. You can avoid the seeds and the stuff. So I, I started eating squash. So technically people would say squash is a vegetable. I would say squash is actually a non-sweet fruit. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, didn't really feel a whole lot different eating squash, um, but my eczema came back. Mm -hmm. So the reason that I cut out plants originally, which many people listening to this may be sort of shocked by and think this is sort of a uh, an intense thing or a, a crazy thing to do, and we'll unpack all this. To only eat meat. To only eat animal products. Mm -hmm. Yes, not just meat necessarily. Okay, but so to, like eggs as well and eggs dairy. And, uh, some people can tolerate dairy. A lot of okay. people don't do very well with dairy. But the reason I cut the plants out was because I was kind of doing this iteration around my own elimination diet and understanding... Uh -huh what is triggering my own eczema, my, my own autoimmune right. disease. And that happened a little over a year and a half ago. So, uh -huh. yeah. Got so it. could we go back and frame this carnivore diet? What, what, what are the reasons why you believe we should eat a carnivore diet? We should maybe we should define a carnivore yeah, diet. Yeah, because I think that it, this has been a hot topic out there. And I think a lot of it is just like with keto, there's clean and dirty keto. There's a way of eating animal products that's quite healthy. There's a way of doing it that's probably not so healthy as well. I would agree with that entirely. So when we think about this, and one of the premises, one of the postulates that I start the book with is a question. How would anyone, Will Cole, me, Seamus, define the perfect human diet, right? Mm -hmm. How would we define not even the perfect human diet? Let's just not even go that far. Let's just 
define a an almost ideal human diet, right? Mm-hmm. We want to get all the nutrients we need, right? In mm-hmm. 2020, we know there are lots of vitamins and minerals we need. There are probably vitamins and minerals out there we don't even know that we need, but we're getting them. So of all the vitamins and minerals we need, how do we get those? And then we want the least amount of toxins. Sound mm-hmm. reasonable? Mm-hmm. Sure. So that's kind of the calculus equation that I am interested in, in in medicine, right? And I solve that a little differently than other people. But when I solve that equation, the carnivore diet or a carnivore-ish diet, which I can talk about, comes out, right? And what that means is that when we are talking about which foods on the planet, and we're broadly dividing them into animal meat and organs, animal foods, and plant foods. Mm-hmm. So which foods on the planet have the highest density and bioavailability and overall sort of presence, cumulative presence of nutrients that humans need? Mm-hmm. That would be animal foods. I mean, oh, I was is... going to say rice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> kick this guy out. It's right? not whole wheat. <laughs> right? That was my second I mean, guess. Yeah, brown rice, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but And so there's a whole chapter in the book mm-hmm. where I compare the relative nutritional values of animal foods and plant foods. And this is very counterculture, but I'm trying to do it in a scientific way and say, hey, look, you know, everyone thinks of kale or broccoli or spinach as a superfood, but when you really break it down, and I have tables in the book which show this, meat and animal foods are far and away, hands down, the best source for human nutrition and always have been, now have been. And this runs counterculture to everything we've been told and so much of the plant-based zeitgeist now. And I debunk Mm -hmm. all of the myths that we're hearing now that animal foods are bad for us in the book as well. So I try to cover all these bases in the book for people that are just, you know, having their minds blown and asking tons of questions out loud. But so animal foods are the source of our nutrients. Mm -hmm. And the second kind of corollary idea there is, hey, are there any nutrients that we can't get from animal foods? And the very surprising answer for me was no, right? right? We can get even vitamin C from animal foods and sure. we, can get vitamin, meats, yeah. Yeah. we can get vitamin C in, in pretty moderate quantities from, mm-hmm. or, from animal foods. And so there are no vitamins or minerals that we cannot get from animal foods. And furthermore, there are lots of things in animal foods that we can't get in plants. B12, vitamin K2, which is menaquinone, versus K1, which is phylloquinone. We can talk about that. And then there's a whole list, and they all Mm -hmm. start with C, creatine, carnitine, carnosine, Mm -hmm. right, choline. These are crucial nutrients for human Mm -hmm. health, vitality, and optimal living Mm -hmm. that are really not present in any appreciable quantity in, in plant foods. And then the second part of the equation is where are the toxins? And that was the other piece of the book that I talk mm-hmm. about, which is really pretty, I think, unique. I'm not sure there are many books that do this. Stephen Gundry started to talk about it with right. Plant Paradox and Lectins. Yeah, this is a deep dive. And I expanded on it ex- in, in much more depth, talking about lectins and oxalates and salicylates and isothiocyanates and flavonoids and many compounds that can be harmful to humans that are found in plants. So that's kind of how mm-hmm. I solve the equation and see, hey, if you're trying to get the most nutrients and the mm-hmm. fewest toxins, that diet is going to be primarily composed of animal foods and it's going to have a very small amount or no very small amount of the least toxic plant foods or no plant foods and again I just want to make it clear to the listeners that I'm not advocating that everybody on earth stop eating vegetables I think that plants are often a fantastically healthy choice for people if they are better than their processed food and we can move people along a continuum but I do want to highlight that plants are trying to defend themselves 
and have a toxicity profile, which may affect different people individually. Uh, let's talk about let's talk about the bioavailability of nutrients. And omega-3s are a great example of this. The main omega-3s that we've heard about are ALA, EPA, and DHA. And there's a, there's acronyms with complex names behind them. So alpha-linolenic acid, icosapentaenoic acid, and docosahexaenoic acid. And the latter two, EPA and DHA, really only occur in animal foods. Mm -hmm. ALA occurs in plant foods. And so when we see a plant food like flax seeds or chia seeds, and they say they have omega-3 fatty, omega yeah. fatty acids, they have ALA, they have alpha-linolenic acid, right. which is interesting and problematic for a lot of people because the conversion is very poor. There's a study that I quote in the book that shows if you give people a bunch of flax seeds, they essentially convert 0% of it mm -hmm. EPA. So the problem is that humans don't use ALA in our biology, and I draw this kind of analogy in the book between different operating systems. Humans don't use plant molecules in our biology. We don't use the plant forms of many nutrients in our biology. We have to convert them to animal forms of these nutrients. ALA goes to EPA and DHA. The latter two are the animal forms of these nutrients. And if the conversion is slow or doesn't happen well, we may become deficient in EPA and DHA, that's problematic. We need some of these omega-3 fatty acids mm -hmm. for every cell membrane in our body. Another good example is vitamin A. The plant yeah. form of vitamin A is beta-carotene, which is a dimeric molecule of two molecules of retinol vitamin A. And you have to split that. And one of the enzymes involved in that conversion is BCMO. Well, a lot of people really don't convert vitamin A to usable retinol well in their biology. Mm -hmm. And there's some interesting studies suggesting that for every unit of vitamin A in the human form, you need to eat 21 units of beta carotene, which means we really need to readjust all of the calculations as to how much beta carotene and vitamin A are in plants. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying you can't get vitamin A equivalents out of beta carotene from a sweet potato, but you have to divide it by 21 yeah. compared to like an egg yolk or liver. Mm -hmm. And so we have to make all these conversions. And it kind of goes back to the original premise. How do you get the most nutrients mm -hmm. from animal foods? And this bioavailability, this interconversion is a real problem for yeah. a lot of people and leads to nutrient deficiencies. So, all right, downshift a little bit and back up now. We're throwing it, they're not, not in the reverse, throw it in throw reverse. It, throw it on second gear. Um, I, the, the first time I heard about the carnivore diet, my reaction was probably the same as your reaction, which this is absolute cockamamie. Why, who would ever think of just eating meat? We all know that you have to eat vegetables. And I, I'm curious to know, because there are lots of people that will, that will tell you eating excess red meat is going to give you colon cancer, eating excess red meat is bad for your cholesterol, eating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, without even getting into the environmental arguments. Um, how do you address those concerns? Were these concerns that you had initially when you started to dabble in or first heard about the carnivore diet? And uh, it's a two-part question because I know you're going to answer in a really long response. The other part of this is... Um, are you at all concerned with what your microbiome might look like now that you are not eating fibrous vegetables? And is there a possibility that people go through an adaptation when they go off of cycle off of a carnivore diet back onto an omnivore diet that they have gut issues because of uh, lack of diversity in, in their gut? Just throwing three questions. Three at questions. Me. Okay. Yeah. All right. Go. I like that. It's yours. Run. <laughs> Here's a whole. Just juggle. Yeah, Here you exactly. go. Juggle them all. All right. 
first question. Also, my other thing is, for those of you that are listening, you probably don't want to listen to this on 1.5 speed because <laughs> you won't understand a word of what Paul's saying. Should I also do this standing on my head? Yeah, why Just not? so I can multitask okay. a little more. Yeah. Uh, so first questions were around the debunking. So I have yeah. chapters in the book. I anticipated this, right? I knew you guys were going to throw this at me. I was doing a little preemptive jujitsu okay, here. Okay, good. So I've got yeah. chapters in the book debunking all of the myths <laughs> around meat, right? Mm -hmm. So meat causes cancer. Totally false. Now, let's just back up one more step here. Why are we told this? We're told this because the media tells us this. Sure. Okay, what is the media basing this on? The media is basing this on epidemiology. And this is a very important concept to discuss because it comes up almost every week. There's a study mm -hmm. that comes out that says red meat intake is associated with XYZ. Sure, correlation, Incre increased, increased incidence of heart disease, increased incidence of mortality, increased incidence of, of colon cancer. I just want the listener to understand this is based on observational epidemiology, which is very different from the experiments that you did in science class in elementary school or right. high school. There is no variable, right? These are survey-based studies looking at historical recall. They'll take a group of people and say, what did you eat over the last 10 years? Right. And you fill out a survey, and then they look at your health outcomes and say, well, you ate three pounds of meat per week, and you have a higher incidence of colon cancer or a higher incidence of heart disease. Now, this is correlational data. It was never intended mm -hmm. to make a causal inference. And it is when you when I explain it this way, I think most people get the light bulb and they say, oh, yeah. that doesn't make any sense because who has eaten three pounds of meat per week or more right. over the last 70 years? In the book, I call them James Dean types. Yeah, there are people that, I mean, can I interrupt for a second? Because this is a point that, that my friend Nina Teicholz made, which I think is a really brilliant point, is that the people that tend to historically have eaten a lot of red meat are also the people that don't follow conventional wisdom around health. So yeah. they tend to be more sedentary, smoke cigarettes. They're like, well, yeah, I don't really care what you tell. I shouldn't be eating meat. Well, I'm going to eat my meat. I'm going to eat my steak. And you're yeah. going to eat your steak with a milkshake. Exactly. And, and a piece and, of bread. And, and, and fries. fries. And finish yeah. it with cigarettes. And, and fries and, and cigarettes. And you're not going to exercise. You're not going to go in the sun. Right. And you're going to ride motorcycles. Yeah. And so which of those things is the causal factor? We can draw a hypothesis, which sure. should then be tested with an interventional study. Right. And guess what? Thank heavens, interventional studies with red meat have been done, mm -hmm. and they don't show any damaging effects in humans. There are specific studies I cite in the book. You can replace a probably 100 grams of carbohydrates in somebody's diet in an interventional study, right? Mm -hmm. This is actually in a control group, an experimental group, an you know, it's an interventional study with half a pound of red meat per day, uh -huh. and they see decreases in insulin resistance, inflammatory markers, markers of DNA damage. So you are increasing somebody's diet with red meat, mm -hmm. you are replacing carbohydrates, inflammatory markers, and all health markers improve, okay? That's an interventional study. That doesn't get reported mm -hmm. in the media yeah. because people would lose their mind. Half a pound of red meat per day decreases your inflammatory markers. Imagine that headline. People would be like, I'm so confused. They don't mm -hmm. know what to do. Well, sure. the reason they're confused is because they see studies every day that are epidemiology. So that is something I want to empower listeners to understand is to ask the question, what type of study is this that right. I'm being mm -hmm. told about? So that is really the blanket answer to so many of these debunking things. I have a whole chapter in the book mm -hmm. on lipids and cholesterol. I saw this great um, text on Instagram or Twitter one time. Somebody asked a doctor, will a ketogenic diet raise my bad cholesterol? And he said, you don't have bad cholesterol. You have bad information. Yeah. <laughs> that's so yeah, that's true, great. right? Because LDL is well, a lipoprotein yeah, right? <laughs> LDL is a lipoprotein molecule that carries cholesterol and triglycerides throughout the body. It is essential to life. Uh -huh. It is essential to life. So we are being told 
that we can pin all of the outcomes of cardiovascular disease on one particle in the human body that is essential to life. The more LDL, the more heart disease. It's as simple as that, according to most pundits in the mainstream media. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a genetic condition called Smith-Lemley-Oppitz syndrome, where there's a genetic defect in the enzyme HMG-CoA reductase that makes cholesterol. Now, this is the enzyme that's inhibited by statins as well. Mm -hmm. Patients with Smith-Lemley-Oppitz syndrome don't make cholesterol, and they don't have LDL at very high levels. They also get rampant infections, and many of them die before birth. Mm -hmm. And you can rescue these patients from infirmity. You can rescue these patients from rampant infections by giving them cholesterol. Mm -hmm. We give people cholesterol, they get healthier because we need cholesterol mm -hmm. as a <clears throat> molecule, which is a steroid molecule, to be packaged into LDL particles. And that serves, as I talk about in the book, an immunological role. What? LDL has an immunological role? Yes. Yeah. LDL is an immune molecule. We've never been told this, but we know in mouse studies and in human studies, it's pretty clear that the more LDL you have in your body, the more resistant you are to infection. Mm -hmm. And again, some of these are observational studies. Some of these are actual interventional studies in rodents. Uh -huh. And when we take LDL away from mice, they die much more quickly mm -hmm. when we infuse them with bacterial molecules and inflammatory cytokines. Like, okay, so the meat doesn't stay in our colon and cause cancer. Meat, got does, that. meat doesn't stay in your colon okay. and cause cancer. Meat is very highly absorbable. People always say, "Isn't it? doesn't it putrefy? No, it doesn't putrefy. It's very highly bioavailable, very highly available to the body. It's absorbable, okay? Mm -hmm. So the reason we have those misconceptions is because of epidemiology. Mm -hmm. Interventional studies tell a very different story. I talk about that in the book, okay? okay. I'm gonna juggle on the next ball, okay. you ready? Gut bacteria. <laughs> Gut bacteria, all right. Microbiome, I debunked this myth too, right? Okay. And so this is something that I think has again been overstated. There are so many people thinking about the microbiome now, and I think we are too quick to believe that we know everything about it. Okay, so when we're talking about the microbiome, it is very difficult to characterize the microbiome. These 15 trillion, 150, you know, trillion organisms in our gut, they weigh a couple of pounds. So I have this pound of bacteria living within me. I have a second organism within me. I do me. too. Not yeah, right. You, right? Yeah, yeah right. that's all of us. Our, we all have these like you know kind of passengers in our <laughs> yeah, guts. Yeah, they're right? buddies. They're buddies. I have my yeah. buddy in there. Like yeah. it, we don't actually know how to characterize this. There mm -hmm. are over a, a thousand species in the gut. And they're interconnected in a web, right? You can imagine a web with a thousand nodes, right? Like a spider web with a thousand places where the, the strands of the web cross. And it's all interconnected. And so we don't know what one species does or another species. There's really no one out there reputable who claims to be able to say what a healthy microbiome is. Right. We know what an unhealthy microbiome looks like. Right. And we know what people who are unhealthy have microbiomes that look a certain way, mm -hmm. but we don't really know what a healthy microbiome is. The, one of the best metrics we have is something called alpha diversity. Alpha diversity is a simple ecological term that suggests in a given ecosystem, like my gut, how many species are there? And so you can look at the alpha diversity of the gut. And this is what's generally looked at in guts. And there are people who do observational studies comparing the alpha diversity of hunter-gatherers in rural Tanzania to- like the Hadza tribe. The Hadza or yeah. to urban Italy, right? Burkina mm -hmm. Faso. And they'll say, hey, look, the Hadza have a high alpha diversity. Amazonian tribes, very high alpha diversity. Mm. Westernized humans in Italy, pretty low alpha diversity. Yeah. So they say, okay, again, this is observational. There's something going on. What most people do is they say they make the incorrect causal inference that it has to do with fiber, uh -huh. which is not true when you look at the interventional research because 
fiber does not increase alpha diversity. This mm -hmm. is very clear in the interventional research. You can give people plant fiber, alpha diversity doesn't change. We don't affect alpha diversity with plant foods. And this is so widely misquoted. Everyone is just saying, we need plant fiber, we need plant fiber. And it's based on observational correlative evidence. And when you look at the interventional studies, giving someone plant fiber does not increase yeah. alpha diversity. And the corollary is also true. Believe it or not, there was a week-long study done with a carnivore diet at Harvard, of all places, and they put people on a plant-based diet and a carnivore diet, mm -hmm. and they looked at the alpha diversity, and they looked at all sorts of metrics of the microbiome over one week. Critics may say it was only over a week. Well, look, the microbiome turns changes, over in five days. It changes days. quickly. It yeah, turns over in yeah. five days. So in a week of the microbiome, you have a completely new microbiome. So that's that criticism, whatever. But, you know... The alpha diversity on a carnivore diet did not change at all, and the beta diversity actually increased. So this is a study that I quote in the book. It's diet reproducibly, uh, predictably and reproducibly alters the gastrointestinal microbiome. People can look up that study. So what we know is that giving someone fiber doesn't increase the alpha diversity. Taking it away doesn't decrease the alpha diversity. So in answer to your question, I don't have any worries about my microbiome because my GI habits, which is probably the best indicator that I have, sure. yeah. are great. I don't fart much at all anymore. No, and believe yeah. me, when I was a vegan, I farted a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like it was bad. Yeah, that, so we both actually, were vegans yeah. for yeah. a while, yeah. Yeah, I had a lot of bad gas. Yeah. And I mean, I know that none of the women listening to this ever get gas, but you know, no, us guys- we, we do. Guys yeah. get gas, you yeah, know? 50% 50, 50 of the population. Yeah. I mean, it's, right. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I did, Will put me on a carnivore diet for 10 days or so. And uh, that was like the first thing I noticed is that I was like, wow, I haven't farted in over a week. Which and it, you know is a pretty good indication. That I actually felt my I my bowel movements were regular. I felt good. You know, I, I the the hardest part for me was just that I really love vegetables. You know, and and so I missed them a lot. I missed yeah. the diversity of cooking. And I think that that's a very reasonable thing. If people want to eat plants for flavor, color, texture, and variety, mm -hmm. and and they don't observe negative effects from those plants, do it. You know, yeah. do it. A lot of them. What I want to empower people is when people are not getting better, there's another solution here. Yes. You know, yeah. that if yeah. somebody has persistent autoimmune disease, persistent mm -hmm. fatigue, low libido, trouble with weight loss, like for me, a skin rash, eczema right. that wouldn't go away, there's another answer. Yeah. Which is Cheer also a microbiome issue. I mean, there's a probably. clear tech engine light there. Yeah. 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 I, I, I agree with you. Like, that's how I use the, the carnivore diet, yeah. a well formulated, which I want to talk about, is to downregulate those inflammatory cascades as an ultimate elimination it's, diet. Yeah, it's an elimination diet, it really and is. And then to do what Paul calls a carnivore-ish or lean into plant foods that work for you. Yep. Um, and then some people are going to be with the propensity for autoimmunity that will have to be, like you said, carnivore-ish or carnivore-adjacent uh, for a long time because their gut is so wrecked. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, and I mean, people will characterize a carnivore diet as an elimination diet. I think that it's very powerful as that, and I think it's more than that. I think that they're You're using it different. There are yeah. many people who can sure. use it as a sustainable diet long term, you mm -hmm. know, but I think that as an elimination diet, that's a powerful tool. Absolutely. You can use it that it should way. should be explored for Yeah. People. Yeah. But I think that if people also, if they, when they, and this is to your third question, I believe when people go to reintroduce, if they get symptoms or they get issues, then, you know, I, I do not believe, and I think this is the frontier of what we understand. I don't think that's an upregulation of the immune system or a sensitization of the immune system. I mm -hmm. think that when you take out the noise, you can see the signal. Sure. It's like looking through life through clear, clear lenses. Yes. Yeah. And you can clearly see my body's really reacting to squash. Right. You know, my eczema got worse. I get like a little eczema on my lower back. And it's like, what the heck? Like I introduced one thing, squash. 
and I get X in my molar back. Like mm-hmm. my gut doesn't like that right now, whether it's mm-hmm. something, whether it's a lectin that I couldn't get out of the squash or something about the fiber in the squash. That's not, that's not working for me. And this kind of goes back to the original premise of the diet. I want people to understand that you can get all the things you need for a healthy existence as a human without plant foods. If people are thriving with plant foods, who am I to tell them what to do? Like, I just want to help people understand there are more ways to be healthy than are being talked about, right? Yeah. And you're bringing up a conversation that hasn't been brought up before in this space and in popular culture. I think it's a really important one to be having with the rise of autoimmune conditions. Yeah. yeah. So if this is a if this is something that 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 is theoretically sustainable for humans from a health perspective, why is it that we've evolved more as omnivores? And not as carnivores. This is a great question. And there are some very sort of interesting, intriguing answers here. So one of the things we know about humans is that we, so the urea cycle is this series of enzymes. And there are three enzymes. There's arginosuccinate, synthase, and and arginosuccinase, and arginase. At the end of the urea cycle, which are different in, in obligate carnivores, meaning like Cats, for instance, tigers, they can upregulate those enzymes almost infinitely, which, meaning, which means they can eat an infinite amount of protein and turn it into urea and excrete it and use protein uh, in their metabolism. Humans mm-hmm. have a threshold for their metabolism of protein, which means that by design, our biochemistry means that humans can only get 35% of our calories from protein. And I think this is actually an argument to say that humans are more of a facultative carnivore than an obligate carnivore. And the implication is that if you can only get 35% of your calories from protein at a ceiling, you have to get 65% from carbohydrates or fat. Now, one of the suggestions, one of the hypotheses that I advance in the book is looking at the anthropology literature. Mm -hmm. It appears that for, there's pretty good anthropology literature looking at stable isotopes and Um, the best reconstructions we can of trophic level eating of our ancestors for the last 2 million years, that humans were eating mostly animals. And that was predicated on the fact that they could get fatty animals because we can't exist as humans on lean animals. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people believe now that one of the reasons that humans evolved as omnivores or a reasonable hypothesis here is that we need the ability to eat carbohydrates when we can't get fatty animals. Being an omnivore means, you know, you can eat carbs when you need them. You can eat fibrous plant matter when you can't get animal foods and you can do Mm -hmm. both. That gives you more flexibility. That's fine. But if you can get an animal, that's probably the best thing for you. And that's generally what we see in tribal cultures is if they can get an animal, that's what they eat exclusively. When animals are available, they eat animals. Mm -hmm. The direct correlate to the amount of animals indigenous hunter-gatherer tribes eat is how many animals they can get, Uh right? And so... Right now, there are changing geopolitical, social confines for Hadza, Ikung. They can't hunt elephants anymore, right? But humans need to hunt big animals because we need fat. In animal foods, you have to basically hunt something bigger than a bison to sustain yourself on animal foods because you need at least 15% of that animal to be fat. But what, more. What, what about something like sardines, which, which have very high fat content? They're actually very low fat content. Really? Yeah, yeah, they're very lean. They're packed in olive oil, so they may look like they no, have no, more that's fat. Not, no, but they're, they're actually, I mean, as, as an oily fish, they have a tremendous amount of fat within the, the muscle tissue. Relatively speaking, they're actually pretty low hmm. because you need the fat. You need a, basically, if humans want to live on protein and fat, it has to be one-to-one, which is about 70-30. Like, well, like bacon or um, like a ribeye steak, mm-hmm. even a grass-fed ribeye steak. We need a moderate amount of fat. You ever hunt? Yeah. A deer is really lean. Super lean, yeah. You, you know, you, humans cannot live on deer alone. We're right. going to need carbohydrates to go with that just based on our biochemistry. 
a, a, a mountain lion can just eat deer all day long because they can upregulate those enzymes in the urea cycle. Mm -hmm. So this is actually saying that it, throughout our evolution, as the megafauna went extinct 60,000 years ago, it was probably a good adaptation uh, okay. that we could, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. we can eat some carbohydrates. The question is, I don't think it's, it's questionable whether humans have eaten plants throughout our evolution. The, the real interesting point here is how much and what's ideal, right? Yeah. right? If you can get animals, you generally eat them. And when tribes get animals, they celebrate it. They eat it nose to tail, which goes back to the well-constructed mm -hmm. carnivore diet idea. They eat the animals nose to tail. But yeah, I think that humans needed the ability to do both so mm -hmm. that we could survive times of starvation. Mm -hmm. Because as you know, hunting, you don't get an animal every day. Right. Can you go over the plant toxicity spectrum? I yeah. think we, we talked about that earlier, but people are going to wonder what that is. It's in the book. But for people to listen to right now, what is it? Yeah, so when you think about plants, um, we imagine that plants and animals have co-evolved for 450 million years. And we see spikes on plants. We see rose bushes with thorns and we see cacti with spines. Mm -hmm. But plants have toxins, they're chemical spikes. And we know this, we just, I don't think we're aware in the popular culture of how broadly that extends, how deep that well goes. Uh, that armamentarium of plants really is. I say it's like a James Bond armamentarium with Q. You know, it's, there's a lot of chemicals. There's hundreds of thousands of chemicals. But generally speaking, plants don't want their seeds to get eaten. It's their babies. Sure. The seed yeah. babies, right? It's, like, yeah, it's their reproductive if, Plant system, babies, guys. Yeah. Plant yeah. babies, yeah. <laughs> you don't want your baby to get eaten. You're, you're basically putting your baby on the Nile and sending it down the river. Yeah, and you're Moses. You, you know, you're putting, you're putting a defensive covering or some defensive molecules around your baby to protect your baby mm -hmm. so that animals clearly know don't eat the seed, right? People are kind of aware of this. Don't feed the dog the apple seeds. They could die, you know, or apricot seeds had to get taken off the market because they have latreal, which is a cyanogenic right. glycoside. That you can kill yourself eating apricot, little almonds, you know? And there are many of these cyanogenic glycosides that are out there that will kill you. Cassava is a root vegetable sure. found in South America that has cyanogenic Cyan glycosides. It's got cyanide. They and have it, to it, hang it in a basket so that the cyanide it can makes, go the outside. It makes yeah. hydrocyanic acid, yeah. right? It will kill you if you eat it. So I just want people to understand plants have toxins, but generally the seeds are the most toxic parts of plants. Mm -hmm. And this is a bigger, this is a bigger sort of basket that people imagine. Seeds are seeds, nuts, grains, and legumes. Sure. Those are all plant babies. Yeah, yeah. What about the skins too? Yeah, I mean, of some things, the skins, if you don't, but we can get into that as well. The skins are generally on fruit, so the mm -hmm. fruit is like a whole different perspective. So the plant babies are the most toxic. Plant babies, and then uh, the stems and the leaves, I think, are also very toxic. And this is where we may differ in opinion, but I am really not excited about people eating leafy greens. And I think yeah. leafy greens, spinach especially, because of the high oxalate content, cause a lot of suffering for humans. I'm really not a fan Spinach of kale. Spinach is causing stuff. I recommend kale cooking them I as predominantly because uh -huh. to break it down, just like with soaking, sprouting nuts does, and seeds. And I, I've never seen any literature. Does cooking break down oxalate? I would say that as far as my patient's responses, that I'm looking for any negative responses. Mm -hmm. And I find that's a lot more tolerable for diversity and mm -hmm. variety of foods or preference, Yeah, that's the best way for people to have them with gut issues or reactive systems. I can't eat spinach at all. I remember making a, a raw spinach right. smoothie when I, I was there are people that can't. I bloated up like I was pregnant, just boom, you know? Yeah. But I'm I'm not familiar with literature. That's, I think the oxalates will persist when you cook the spinach. Perhaps some of them will come out in the water, but- Yeah, I would agree with you. There's a whole chapter on oxalates in the book and where they can get deposited. But so 
leafy greens, I think, is toxic, especially the high oxalate foods and the brassica vegetables. And I know we may mm -hmm. disagree on this, but I think that brassica vegetables are not healthy for humans. And then the middle of, uh, and the nightshades would be sort of on that high toxicity spectrum just because of their ability. We kind of know that they have lectins and other things that can trigger yeah, people's yeah. immune system. Nightshades are like Alkaloids. tomato, eggplant, bell pepper, things like this. Now again, and then in the middle are things like fruit, generally fruit and mm -hmm. tubers. And then the least toxic plants are the non-sweet fruits and like avocados. Avocado, mm -hmm. olives, and berries, things like yeah. this, and lettuces like romaine or uh, green and, and red leaf lettuce. Those are probably less toxic in mm -hmm. general. So there's a spectrum there, and I think that people will tolerate those more easily. Squash is a non-sweet fruit, but again, I reacted to mm -hmm. it. And so... And grains you're, you're lumping in with like the seeds and, yes, the, and the babies. I think of grains as particularly yeah. triggering for the people. The title of this yeah. episode will be Plant Babies. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> plant Babies. Plant Babies, don't, don't mess with plant babies. Plant Babies are out to kill us. Plant Babies are out to get you. <laughs> yeah. Don't mess with Plant Babies. They have ninja Next moves. Halloween, the scariest yeah. costume is going to be like, like a bag of spinach. Plant Babies <laughs> yeah. are basically Chucky, you know? Yeah. Like, it's pretty bad. And, you know, the oxalate chapter was striking for me to I write. I loved it, that chapter. It was good. You know, there are cases of oxalate nephropathy with frank kidney failure progressing to dialysis with green smoothie cleansers. But again, not to scare people. Some people are tolerating this fine, mm -hmm. right? Like if yeah. something's working for you, great. But Do there it. are people well, yeah, with this, food reactivity. We talk about this all the time, yeah. that it really depends on the individual. And if you're dealing with, if you already have a heavy toxic load or you're dealing with an autoimmune issue or you're de like you were dealing with eczema, uh, then obviously some of these things are going to be more difficult for you to digest. I have a question for you. So sometimes I see a lot of, well, not a lot, over the years I've seen a lot of patients that are vegan and vegetarian long-term when they bring meat in, their stomach, their their hypochlorhydria, their decreased hydrochloric acid is wrecked. It takes a while to rebuild that back up. Do you feel like that could be a problem for people that are carnivore long-term where it's like their gut microbiome is just not used to breaking down those those plant compounds. It's a possibility, though I haven't seen it clinically. Yeah, nor have, I have. There's no studies on this. Right, but right. I just would. Yeah, yeah. Postulate That's that. a little different. That situation is very interesting, and I, people sometimes, if they are plant based, will say, "My, can't I just meat?" And I do wonder if they have hypochlorhydria. I think they do due to zinc deficiency yeah. or choline deficiency. And I think that some supplementation yeah. with the minerals that are to present into it. that are in meat mm -hmm. might help yeah. them digest the meat, right? And I think a lot yeah. of people, when they introduce large amounts of fat, may not digest it well either because of problems with bile acid mal uh, malabsorption in the mm -hmm. gut, probably mm -hmm. related to dysbiosis or other things. So I, one of the points I want to make to people in the book is if you eat animal foods and you don't feel good, it may be that you actually need more animal foods. And then working mm -hmm. with a yeah. physician- Start off low and slow. Yeah, start off low yeah. and slow. Maybe yeah. you need some specific targeted supplementation if you have become deficient in the nutrients that are in animal foods totally. right, that are needed to have a healthy digestive system. Yeah. And mm -hmm. perhaps it will unmask things that will be very helpful long-term because as you know, we don't want hypochlorhydria to persist, like either yeah. from a proton pump inhibitor or in general, like yeah. even if somebody has hypochlorhydria, not enough acid in the stomach, that's a bad thing for long-term outcomes in terms of absorbing everything, not just animal foods. But you know, the question, so I did a podcast with Lucy Mayling about the gut, and this is kind of the main frontier is, do we lose species in the gut by not having any plant fiber long-term? And we don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. We just don't know the answer. One of the things that's intriguing for me is that there are studies in cheetahs and there are compelling studies in humans to suggest that we can ferment 
animal fiber, much the way that we would ferment plant fiber, mm -hmm. and that we can make short-chain fatty acids. I mean, this is clearly established that we can make isobutyrate instead of butyrate, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But we can make short-chain fatty acids out of animal foods. So we don't really know what that web yeah. looks like. And is there a keystone species that's missing that we need to reintroduce? There's a very valid... Um, suggestion that maybe a carnivore diet should be done seasonally. Yeah. And then maybe in the summer you introduce fruit or some carbohydrates yeah. and then you cycle back off of it. So we don't fully know, you know? Yeah. And I think that's that's probably one of the most interesting questions for me. There are studies in uh, rodents suggesting that after four generations of absent fiber in their diet, there are species of bacteria that are lost permanently. And so mm. it's like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't do zero fiber forever, or maybe we shouldn't do zero carbohydrate forever. I don't think we know mm -hmm. um, where that's going. I think there's a lot of people out there who are finding incredible improvements in GI symptoms when they remove all the fiber. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we just need to, I think that it'll be years before we really understand the gut microbiome. Right. And if people want to introduce some fiber if they tolerate it, I'm totally fine with that. I just want people to be aware that right. it could be triggering issues. The so, studies around the Hadza tribe, weren't there, wasn't there more bacterial diversity in the months where they weren't having as much vegetables? To your point, yeah. it's mm -hmm. the nose to tail component right. that that idea that plant fiber is the only way to get bacterial diversity, isn't that the case? Exactly. And and yeah. And then we also know that when people are fasting, right. acromancia goes up. So acromancia is one of these keystone species that's, that is, you know, kind of associated with the mucus layer. Yes. We talked about it with Dr. Yeah. Gundry. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But acromancia goes up when we're fasting. So yeah. anyone who suggests that acromancia is associated with fiber well, wait a minute. Fasting is the ultimate zero fiber diet. Excuse me, you know, yeah. and it's pretty low fiber. People, yeah, pretty kind yeah. of low fiber. People will also suggest that not eating fiber will decrease the mucus layer. Well, acromancia feeds on the mucus layer. So to say that acromancia goes up when you're fasting is not is not really consistent intellectually because the mucus layer must be very healthy when you're fasting to support a healthy, robust population of acromancia mm -hmm. mucinophilia. Now, in some people, overgrowth of acromancia is probably a response to inflammation, and you've probably seen that clinically in your practice. But generally speaking, we know that we don't need fiber to support mucus-loving bacteria like acromancia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To your point with the Hadza as well, um, I told you guys I was long-winded. Um, to your point with the Hadza, they don't even really generally have bifidobacteria. So when people try and point to certain species and say, this species is, is important for human health, we say, well, no, this hunter-gatherer tribe doesn't even have bifidobacteria. So you can't tell me that if a diet decreases bifidobacteria, that's bad for you. Well, we don't know that. Right. that that's mm -hmm. not true at all. Right. And ultimately, I think that at this point, our understanding of the microbiome is such that we have to rely on clinical outcomes. And if somebody does better when they remove fiber, you're like, run with it. Yeah. Right. What's it? So, what's it? Sorry. Go, go ahead, Shane. No, I'm just curious to know because um, the you know I think we all can agree that regenerative agriculture is good environmentally, but if we were to make an argument for shifting towards a purely carnivorous diet, obviously the 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 load on on our environment is, is not sustainable, and to that end, I know there's a lot of there, there's a lot of conversation around uh, alternative animal uh, protein sources like crickets, for instance. What are what are your thoughts about how this, on a broader scale, can be sustainable? And I know yeah. it's a huge. You're gonna go for question, it. You're gonna ask me the yeah. bombshell. Like yeah, a few I mean, minutes. it's <laughs> I, I know it's and, it, and okay, it's so not. And I, I, I don't want to. I mean, I don't want to be like a Debbie Downer, but the reality is, is that we can't because of the number number of people on this planet. Let me unpack this for a minute. There's mm -hmm. nothing sustainable about eight to nine billion people on this planet. Period. Right. And guess what? And the, soy and corn are also not part of the solution. Exactly. 
the current monocrop agriculture system we have no, is work. also yeah. not sustainable. Right. So it's, tilling of the soil yeah. will destroy humanity, mm-hmm. right? Because what we know is that what we're doing now, when people suggest that, the, the sort of the underlying inference is that what we're doing now is sustainable. Right. It ain't. <laughs> like, what we're doing now is not sustainable. So unfortunately, we don't really have a good way to feed 8 billion people nutritious food. Mm-hmm. And it certainly is not monocrop agriculture. When you till the soil, which is what you must do for monocropping, which is how the majority of plant foods are grown, mm-hmm. you release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And more importantly, you oxidize the topsoil. That decreases, that destroys the mycorrhizal fungal networks and decreases the productivity of the land. Have you ever seen, so the, the United States in the middle of the country was grassland. Yeah, it's brown. It's br- it's the Dust Bowl. It's brown, we, but it, but there's gr- and miraculously there's green corn and green soy that grows in it. Right, because we fake it, right? Right. But, but we destroyed it. And we destroyed it. Yeah, there's it no with, diversity. It's all We monocrop. destroyed it with agriculture, but it used to be the most fertile land sort of in the country, mm-hmm. probably in the world, because 250 million ruminants were grazing on it for right. thousands of years before humans got here. They were 250 million ruminant animals, buffalo, yep. sheep, elk, pronghorn, deer in the United States. Yeah, right? grazing and shitting on grazing the grass. And, grazing and pooping on the grass, leading to incredibly fertile soil that produced lots of grass. And then we came in and said, that's rich soil. Let's grow corn here. Mm-hmm. And then you do a few generations and the soil gets to be less because you need animals to replenish nutrients mm-hmm. in the soil. Mm-hmm. The only way... The only way to rehabilitate soil is with animals. Is animal grazing, yeah. So the, this. The, most, the most sustainable thing is putting more animals on the land and raising them in a conscientious way. Yeah. Farms mm-hmm. like White Oak Pastures, Belcampo, doing regenerative agriculture. People may not be familiar with that term. It basically means mimic the buffalo, right? right. Buffalo graze and they move, they poop and pee on the land, and then they die on the land and their bodies become a part of the land, mm-hmm. right? And that's exactly what many farms are doing now is they're putting the animal compost back onto the land yeah. and they are moving cows around. They are not doing clustered animal feeding op- operations and grain feeding. So I'm a strong advocate advocate for moving away from factory farming. Nobody thinks that's good, uh-huh. right? But the I think that the answer is we begin at home. It's very hard to control the policy. I can't control how India raises their cows, right? right. But we can control how things are done in the United States. What's pretty darn clear, and this is striking to people, is that cows that are factory farmed mm-hmm. spend 85% of their time eating grass. Mm-hmm. We could raise every single cow in this country grass-fed, grass-finished. Mm-hmm. We could snap our fingers tomorrow and do away with all CAFOs, all clustered mm-hmm. animal feeding operations, all grain feeding of animals. Every cow that is grain fed now started out as a grass fed cow. Mm-hmm. We have enough land. We have enough resources. It's just consumer demand. Yeah. The reason we do grain feeding is because it produces more cow because they get fatter faster, and it's cheaper, yep. fatter, faster, cheaper, yep. right? Yep, so, when, when, so when people say we can't do all grass fed, I say, they all started out as grass-fed. Yep. We absolutely can do grass-fed. And when you do regenerative agriculture, if you increase the productivity of the land, mm-hmm. you can put more animals in that land. We could currently meet the, the U.S. demands for meat with 100% grass-fed animals. Absolutely right now. Now, if everybody goes full carnivore, which would never happen, right? right, right. Because maybe 5% of the population max. Yeah. And, you know, people could even go carnivore-ish, right? I'm not saying that everyone needs to go carnivore again. We can meet again. I love again because we were there at one point. I know, <laughs> no, we don't need to go carnivore, yeah. but you know, we could feed, we could meet all the demands for meat in the United mm-hmm. States right now. If the meat demands increased, then we need to increase the productivity of the land. We put more animals on the land, 
and we take away the clustered feeding operations, mm -hmm. and maybe we take away, we have to regenerate or revitalize some of the land that's being used for monocrop right now that's growing corn and soy. Like, right. how are those contributing to human health? So yeah. the, the environmental considerations are quite complex, mm -hmm. but I want people to understand what we're doing now is not sustainable. So I just want to, what's a day in the life for people that are listening, what does a carnivore day look like? What do it's, I eat? It's, dude, it's radical. I get up, I surf. <laughs> I do amazing. <laughs> I go out in the sun. I play. I jump in the ocean. When I eat, <laughs> when you eat, when other I, than yeah, all that stuff. When cool I too. eat, so when I eat, so what I do is not what everybody needs to do. And in the mm -hmm. book, I outline tiers one through five. I talk about carnivore-ish diets. Right? There are many ways to do this. Right? The way that I eat is Paul's diet. I wrote the book. I'm tier five carnivore. I'm sort of like the mascot here. My yeah. diet is mostly meat and organs. It's going to sound very strange to people. You're like so a high-level Scientologist. Basically. I'm I'm, tr I'm trying to be the astronaut, right? I'm trying to be the guy who's like, yeah. how does it look to do this? What's hard? What's easy? So I really enjoy eating animal organs. So before, this morning I got up, came to LA. I had um, about four eggs. And I just eat the yolks because I've found the whites to trigger me. We talked about this on the podcast yeah. that yeah. you and I did yeah. Yeah. on well, my I've podcast, well. yeah. which yeah. is Fundamental Health. Um, we talked about albumin. So I just eat the egg yolks, right? Mm -hmm. And I had some grass-fed steak with that from White Oak Pasture. So it's grass-fed, grass-finished, regenerative agriculture steak. I had Redmond Real Salt. And then I had some liver. And that was my breakfast this morning. Then I had some bone broth that I made myself. And people may think, well, I can get I can get down with that, but there's no vegetables and nothing. And it's like, okay, if you wanted to make that carnivore-ish, you could add an avocado, add some berries, add some salad. What I would not add would be spinach, kale, other things like that, right? Or nuts, grains, seeds, legumes. And I'll probably do the same thing for dinner. I might mix it up. I might have a different cut of steak. I might have a ribeye or a New York steak or some, I had some tenderloin. Um, I might have some different organs. I like to eat all the organs in the animal and people will not be familiar with these organs unless they are from other countries. But I will eat things like kidney or whatever and people are like gonna get grossed out by that. So I'll eat the different organs mm -hmm. and I'll think about, you know, it's all regenerative agriculture, raised meat. I'll get bone broth for glycine, connected tissue. I'll use some salt. And that's generally what my diet looks like on a daily basis. I have been doing honey recently. I've been kind of playing around with carbohydrates to see if there's any difference. Mm -hmm. I don't notice a huge difference, but honey is essentially carnivore in some ways. It's not produced by plants with defense yeah. chemicals and probably really good for us. There's some really interesting literature that shows that in eating honey doesn't seem to have the biochemical effects as eating high fructose corn syrup. Interesting. Why are we not surprised? Whole food, many, yeah. many chemicals in it. Who knows? Lots more to dig into with honey, but that's how I eat. But I want to let people know you could make that look differently. You know, you could have squash, you could have avocado, you could have olives, you could have lettuce, you could have berries, you could even have sweet potato or things mm -hmm. like this. And those mm -hmm. would be carnivore-ish, less toxic, right? And then see how you react to them. So it's pretty easy to include some plant foods on your diet. What I do is probably not great for everybody, but then again, I'm like, you're the Tom Cruise of the yeah. carnivore diet. I'm the astronaut. So can you can you explain to us, you just said something that totally blew my mind. What the fuck is an oxalate? Can you curse on this show? No, I can, but you can't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oxalates. So there's, there's no really easy answer for this. They're dicarboxylic acids, meaning they're two carbon molecules okay. with two carboxylic <laughs> acids on them. I have a picture of oxalic acid in the book. It's a waste product produced by human biochemistry when we break down hydroxyproline and uh, glyoxalate. And uh, basically, we produce maybe 20 to 30 milligrams of oxalate per day. And if, if we eat high oxalate foods, we can get 100 times that amount in our diet, which can be very damaging for us. So spinach will have oftentimes five, 600 milligrams of oxalate. So there's a condition called primary hyperoxaluria where people have a genetic defect in the enzyme, um, which breaks down 
in the, in the glyoxylate pathway, which, which makes oxalate, right? And they make lots of oxalate. So they make levels of oxalate that are between 100 and 500 milligrams a day. So people who are chronically excreting 100 to 500 milligrams of oxalate per day get kidney stones, they get oxalate deposition throughout the body, it's called systemic oxalosis, and they usually die of kidney failure. We can get those levels of oxalate in our body transiently by eating things like spinach, almonds, chocolate, turmeric. So we can create levels of oxalate in our body that mimic primary hyperoxaluria by eating high oxalate foods. Thanks for joining our conversation with Paul Saladino. It was really, at least from for me, uh, coming from a functional medicine standpoint as well as Paul does as well. I use the the carnivore diet in my practice for my patients. It's not a one size fits all. Am I an advocate for everyone to do the carnivore diet forever and ever? No. Do I think that the carnivore diet can be, at least if it's well formulated, if it's nutrient dense for a time? I use it as an ultimate elimination diet when it's clinically appropriate. When somebody is having food reactions very wildly when they're reacting to just about every food under the sun. Yeah, I think a well-formulated, nutrient-dense carnivore diet is appropriate for a time. But the goal of it is to calm things down, to let the inflammation downregulate, to get the immune system to chill for a moment, and then to slowly and systematically reintroduce reintroduce foods. Most people aren't going to want to eat a carnivore diet forever and ever. I do think his carnivore-ish approach can be good uh, for some people. If that's their preference, if their labs look great, if it's working for them, then go for it. But I think the long-term, I I don't think we really know the long-term implications of this as far as the gut microbiome is concerned and the impact that has on our gut microbiome. So that's my only concern. There's no long-term studies, but for a time, super smart. It makes sense for some people that are having these food reactions. But look, we are all about being curious on Goopfellas, asking questions, experiment, see if this is right for you or not. Pick up Paul's book. It's really a good read. He definitely backs up everything he's saying with some awesome studies. So you can learn more about Paul Saladino at carnivoremd.com. You can listen to his podcast, Fundamental Health, as well. And make sure to grab a copy of his book, The Carnivore Code, available now. Got a question you'd like us to answer? The Goop team is keeping a running list for us, so just hit them up at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. At the end of every episode, we'll be answering a question from one of you guys. If you have a question about us or about men and wellness or really anything else is on your mind, just let us know. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies and ways to approach health and well-being. And I love to talk about food and cooking and, well, reality is anything. I just love to talk. So send your questions over to the Goop team on Instagram or Facebook. As Goop likes to say, nothing is off limits. It's time for another Ask Me Anything, and this one comes from Paula, and she wants to know, do you sing, question mark, publicly, question mark? Will, do you sing? The answer is no. My friends and family want me to, uh, say, let's go to karaoke and, and, and do that. And it is like one of my worst fears. Really? Ever. I, I don't mind watching people. Uh-huh. I enjoy that people watching uh, moment, but not for myself. No, mm-hmm. that's, I no way. How about you? Well, I mean, yes, I do sing. I'm not uh, on the stage, but... I sing in the car when I'm listening to music. I sing in the shower frequently. Um, yeah, I mean, I like singing. I think singing is great. I, am I good at it? Probably not. 
I think I am, but I don't think anyone <laughs> else thinks I am. Uh, but yeah, no, I think there's something really nice about um, about singing. It's very therapeutic. Yeah, I, I, it yeah, is. Definitely wouldn't wish that on anyone. <laughs> That's it for today. Thanks for hanging out with us. Will and I would love to know what you think about Goop Fellas. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit subscribe and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to goop.com slash goopfellas. And we hope you'll be here again next Wednesday. Talk soon.